Good morning, everybody. Chantis, thanks, man, for leading us. Well, it's always a privilege to play with these guys. Full disclosure, I'm, I'm hoping my voice is going to hold up. Um, I'm wearing my orange today because I was in Neyland Stadium yesterday with uh, about 90,000 friends and had a good time, but I, I've, done this a, I've done this a dozen times in the past. I know I'm singing the next day. I know I've got responsibilities here. I can't not yell. I've tried to clap. Just clap. It doesn't work. Hence my voice. I sound like Tony Runyon. Um, <laughs> that's a good thing, though. But thank you um, for being here this morning. It's a privilege to uh, get to open God's Word with you. Happy fall break. For all of you uh, watching online, um, especially for our, our teachers and their families and students, um, I'm excited to, to get to do this because it's been a minute for me. Uh, I think last April actually was the last chance that I had to preach and a lot has changed for my family and I since then. Um, so this is, the, this is the first chance I've got to, to preach since I left my full-time position here at Providence in August. But I want to take just a couple of minutes before I get started to, uh, to let you know uh, what I've been up to, if you haven't heard. Uh, and I want you to know mainly so that, you know, one, you can pray for me, for Kristen and Charlie and uh, baby girl soon to be here. But two, that so you all can know how you all can know all the ways that, that we've grown together um, these past few years and how you're still having an impact on me and, and, and through me. So I'm about a, I'm about a month into uh, my full-time position working in my role as a chaplain with the Tennessee National Guard, um, specifically on a COVID-19 relief mission uh, that's been up and running for about 18 months. Really, as soon as the, the pandemic started, the governor allocated these re resources and personnel to, to help with this crisis. And maybe you've seen on, on the news lately how there are National Guard troops in local hospitals. That's basically what we're doing. Um, the work has, has changed a lot in the last, well, basically since everything started. Um, at first, uh, Guard troops were in... Uh, pop-up testing sites, um, helping helping that helping out with that, and then they transitioned into healthcare, you know, health, health departments as as testing turned into vaccines, and and now we're a hundred percent in hospitals, uh, supplementing a a healthcare workforce that is depleted, and is extremely appreciative of the the help that uh, we're offering them. So my role as a chaplain. It's kind of cool because I get to help our folks, most of which have zero training in the medical field as they adjust and operate in a stressful environment and very unique situation. Um, some of these people, young soldiers and airmen, they've never seen anything like this before. They've never been around death. And quite honestly... It's affecting them. Um, it's affecting me. I've never seen anything like this before. And I, 
I talk to veteran healthcare workers every day, and they all say the same thing. No one has ever seen anything like this before. But I'm not telling you something you don't know. I'm sure you watch the news. But every day I get to put on my uniform, get in a rental car, and drive all over East Tennessee, um, currently to 17 different hospitals between Chattanooga and the Tri-Cities, uh, checking in on the well-being of National Guard soldiers and airmen. And it's a huge honor. You know, I tell people, I don't know how long this will last, um, how long the money will be there. And obviously, if I could, you know, snap my fingers like Thanos and make this all go away, I would. I want COVID to go away. But I'm still grateful that I get to serve in this way. Um, in a lot of ways, it's unlike anything I've ever gotten to do before. I don't like hospitals. I don't like hospitals. Some people, you know, I, but there's, there's a lot about this job that makes me uncomfortable. But I'm reminded that for the first, for the first 10 years of Providence, uh, that has helped me learn that God is rarely working when we are comfortable. When, it's when we step outside of our comfort zones. It's when we, you know, that, that's when he grows us. That's when he uses us. That's where he wants us, you know, to be oftentimes. You've heard the saying, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's what it's like to be a Christian. And had I not been a part of facing some serious challenges alongside you all here over the years, had to, had to pray and humble myself um, beside you guys and rely on God to do the kind of things that only God can do, then I, I doubt I would, I'd, I'd be a military chaplain and I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. So thank you for helping me grow still. We'll talk more about this in just a few minutes. But enough about me. I want to get down to business this morning. Turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 2. I'm grateful Tony's letting me roll right along in Peter's letter. We get to talk about some really cool stuff this morning. Last week was kind of where the rubber meets the road. Um, in Peter's argument as it as chapter 1 transitioned into chapter 2. This, this big theological case that Peter is, is making, it helps us know how to react, how to respond to the mercy shown, shown us through the soul-saving and grace-giving work of Jesus Christ. I think every sermon should begin with a little alliteration, so that was free. But let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 4. That's where we're going to start this morning. Read along with me. If you can, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling block and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen to that. That almost preaches itself. I just want to go back to verse 4 and and walk back through this bit by bit. And we'll stop here in just a second. But remember what Peter is talking about here. I love how verse 4 starts. As you come to him. It's it's like his way of saying, boy, I sure hope you're you're, you're, you're listening to my argument. I sure hope you'll agree with what I'm saying. You'll take my advice. Specifically, the advice he's just given in the previous verses to grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's like he assumes his audience will. He doesn't say, if you come, but as you come. It's like, so he's saying because of what, because of what I just said is true and you know it, come. Come to him. And don't stop coming. Just because you came, don't stop. Keep coming. Every day. Every single day. It's a daily, personal relationship with Jesus. You're a living stone. Not a, some, you know, dead, regular rock stone. You're a living stone. And you're being built up as a spiritual house. You're growing up into salvation, Peter says. You're not the house, but you're an important piece of the house. God's family, his church that he's building. You are uniquely called, specifically gifted, vital to the structure of the house. So keep coming, he says. You're not done yet. We need you. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you is a big deal. It's quite literally why we are here. So all the things we talked about last week are vital to you being the part of the body of Christ that God designed you to be. Last week it was personal. How you and I reckon with the good news of the gospel, how it works out in our lives, what faith looks like. This week, it's how that reality connects us a little bit. So read, let's read verse 5 again. Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I want to ask you a question, and it's a rhetorical one because I, I think I know the answer. Do you think of yourself as a priest? I don't either. Let's be honest. Um, but anytime, anytime in Scripture something is said twice, close together, it means, hey, we should probably press pause and look around a little bit. So, what does it mean to be a priest? A holy priest, a royal 
priest. I hope you're thinking to yourselves, um, hey, we don't need priests anymore. And that's good. That's good. But, but wait just a minute. I want you to, to look at this for a little bit. Most of us in the Bible Belt, we think of ourselves as much too independent to think we need a priest, much less to be one. Unless you have a Catholic background, you, our culture has almost lost its understanding of the importance of a priest. It's almost like the song we sang just a minute ago, uh, King of My Heart. Last time I checked, it's been about 245 years since we've had a king around here. And if you know, that didn't end well between us. We don't know what it's like to have a king. Now, the same is true for me. I don't think we half understand what it means when we say that Jesus is Lord or as God as king because we're so far removed from a world where those things impact us. We don't know what it's like to have a king. We don't know what it's like to have a Lord there's one thing that's alive and well in our culture today, it's this idea of, don't you dare tell me what to do, right? That's alive and well, right? People with kings don't get to say that. People with lords governing their lives don't get to say that. Don't shoot the messenger. He who has ears, let him hear, Okay? We don't understand kings, and we don't understand priests either. And I can say as a proud and grateful Protestant, no offense to my Catholic friends, and I have a couple, that it is a shame we are so unfamiliar with the concepts of a priesthood. We read the Old and New Testament with our eyes covered with our hands if we don't, if we think that being a priest is just someone who like killed a bunch of animals on an altar. It's so much more than that. We could spend the rest of the this year and all of next talking about how important priesthood is in the Bible. And I just want to offer up a few things this morning uh, that that will help us in light of in light of what I think Peter's message is to us. I want to look at a basic definition of a priest. Can you show that? That definition, this is from uh, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, right? They, they, they define priest as someone who is authorized to perform the sacred rites of a religion, especially as a mediatory agent between humans and God. So this makes sense. Almost all religions have something like this, okay? Caretakers, teachers, someone who stands between the divine, and, and man, and facilitates the interaction between the two. But in every religion, this, is, it, this looks a little different, um, as you might expect. So before we start talking about the Jewish priesthood we see in the Bible, I want to tell you a story about an interaction I had with a drunk man in the Himalayan mountains near the border of Nepal and China. This is back in... 2015, actually six years ago right now I was there uh, with some friends from Providence Church in Knoxville actually. Um, so we're in this remote village where 
uh, we met this man, and there's, there's no other way to describe him than the, the village drunk. That's what he was. That's how he was introduced to us. He wouldn't have argued with that, that description. Uh, the reason, though, that his, his drunkenness was noteworthy was because this particular man was the village llama. So in, in Buddhist culture, a llama is not a large four-legged furry creature you find in South America. It's a, it's a religious teacher. Uh, you've probably heard of the Dalai Lama. That's just like the big dog in that culture. Um, in Nepal, I was told that every village, no matter how small or big, has their own Lama. These were men who, for better or worse, were the religious teachers, the pastors of their communities. So as we were hiking around and visiting these villages, uh, we were trying to strike up conversations with locals and, you know, ho hope to share the gospel with them, and um, asking about the mountains that they lived in and creation was kind of a great conversation starter. We'd ask them, hey, um, who do you think made these beautiful mountains? Your home is gorgeous. Who, who made this? And commonly, it was surprising, commonly the answer we got was, hmm, I don't know. You should go ask the llama. So this drunk guy was the village llama, okay? <laughs> and we were having this conversation with him over dinner one night. And I'll never forget this. They were, of course, we're talking to a translator. And someone asked him, who made these mountains? And I'll never forget the look on his face when he said, you'll have to ask a better llama. <laughs> so what he actually meant by that was, well, it was a legitimate answer because he, was, he would have to send a letter or travel like two days to the nearest, uh, a bigger town that would have had a better trained llama, someone who, who knew more and it might have an answer to that, what I would call a very basic question, but because he didn't know, he didn't have an answer to who created all of this. In that culture... You're probably only as informed as the village llama is. And in a lot of religions, the priesthood works the same way. Priests are the keeper of the keys, so to speak, of the, the knowledge of the divine for good and bad. And that's important for us to remember. So what does it mean to be a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, as Peter says? And why is it important? Real quick, we're going to go all the way back, take a left in your Bibles, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We've got to go to the beginning. I'm going to read in chapter 1, verses 26, starting there. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, little, just a little recap. And I, wa I want you to be putting on your, your, your priestly focused glasses because 
If you'll do that, if we'll do the work to recognize this, you'll see that from the first page of the Bible to the very last page, there is a theme that runs through this book of what God is doing. Here is God creating and commissioning mankind, male and female, to be royal priests in this world. They are God's image representing God in his holy space that was the garden in the middle of Eden. They are to, what does he say, work and keep the garden. They represent creation to God, and as God's image, they represent God to creation. And God tells them to rule creation on his behalf. They're like priests who embody God's heavenly rule and wisdom on earth. By cultivating and subduing God's good creation, they proclaim the excellencies of God to the ends of the earth. I hope that sounds familiar. So if anyone ever asks you, hey, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Tell them that. Go right to the beginning. Tell them that. Everything after Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are deceived and, and sin fractures our relationship with God, the rest of the story, everything after that, is about God working to undo our helpless inability to get back to heaven on earth and to allow us once again to be God's royal priest. And it all begins with the promise. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, before Adam and Eve are even kicked out of the garden, God makes a promise to them that one day, one day he will raise up a descendant of Adam and Eve to rule over and defeat the one who deceived them. This promised descendant will strike the head of their deceiver, but also be struck by it. And so we first see the promise that God will restore his blessing to us by a priestly figure that himself serves as a sacrifice. You fast forward thousands of years later when Jesus comes on the scene, there is a whole history recorded in Scripture of God pointing towards His promise to send a priestly, to send a priest to uh, mediate and restore our exiled condition. Abraham, Moses, David all had priestly attributes. Abraham was called by God. Uh, Moses spoke to God like a man speaks with a, a friend. David was a man after God's own heart. But all of them were, as you know by reading their stories, incredibly imperfect people. Likewise, the actual priests in the Old Testament that, that you read about, these, these, are, these are descendants of Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. They weren't good dudes either. Levi is denounced by Israel on his deathbed because of his violence. And apparently that trait was passed down to his, to his descendants. When Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments from God and he hears the ruckus down at the bottom with the camp, he's like, oh man, they're messing it up. I know it. He goes down. What do they do? They, they've built a golden calf and they're literally worshiping something because they're scared. They're nervous. I don't know what. He comes down, despite all the signs and wonders that they've just experienced coming out of Egypt, 
Listen to what Moses does. This is Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That's crazy. Does that sound like your local pastor? Tony's not here. You can speak freely. These are the people God calls to be his priest, to minister to his own people. I want to give you five things, five things that stand out about these priests that are important for us to know. Number one, priests were not perfect people. Surely what I just read proves that. The Levites did not earn their special role among God's people. Jacob had almost no blessing for Levi. That tells us something. Number two, the priests were chosen by God. Only descendants of Levi could be priests. Out of all the tribes of Israel, there's, there's a lot of them, only descendants of Levi could be priests. And only a select few of them ministered in the tabernacle and later at the temple it was an and it was an insane honor but no amount of no amount of wanting to be a priest could make you one if you were not a levite a son of levi number 3 the priests were set apart by god the bible goes to extraordinary lengths to show us this fact numbers chapter one, chapter 1 records moses with the israelites in the sinai desert uh, and he takes a census of all the people, except the Levites. Why is that? Let's read, starting in verse 48. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and they shall camp around the tabernacle. So they're not like everyone else. Obviously, carrying the tabernacle, which held the Ark of the Covenant, which was the representation of the very presence of Yahweh, their God, massive deal. No one else could do that. These people are set apart. They're different. They are gods, and God makes that clear to Moses and likewise point number four God is theirs they have this insane privilege they have a special relationship with God let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 18 just a couple verses here verse 1 the Levitical priests all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel they shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance 
They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him, the Levites, out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So the Levites don't get land like their brothers and their other tribes. They don't, they don't shoulder the burden of fighting Israel's battles like the rest of them. The Levites are spread out all throughout the, the nation of Israel to be priests. They don't work like others work. They don't they don't, they don't own possessions like others own possessions. It's everyone else's responsibility to take care of them. The Levites have things that others cannot partake in. They have a special purpose. And point number five, the priests have a, a special mission. A special mission. Worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, it's a big task. I mean, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's all about the details of how they should do this and why it's so important. When they go from tabernacle to the temple later on, the responsibilities for these people just increase. There's, there's maintenance and cleaning of the temple courtyards and grounds, protecting and guarding the facility, playing music and leading people and singing psalms and songs meeting with, with, with Jews for prayer and for counseling, training the next generation of Levites to serve, collecting tithes and offerings, recommending advice to the political leaders, studying God's word and teaching it to others, and preparing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in a holy and acceptable way before God. And when Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you are a priest, that's what he means. How can that be? It can be because of Jesus. You see, the greatest mission a priest could perform was done by the high priest. Once a year, in the Holy of Holies, the inner room of God's house where the, the priests work and cultivated, much like Adam and Eve in the garden, here alone in the presence of God, one sacrifice would temporarily atone for the sins of the people. And when Jesus broke the power of sin on the cross and the veil of the temple was, was, was torn from the top down, no more sacrifice was needed. The perfect sacrifice just willingly gave himself, not just for the sins of, of, of one people, for one year, but for the sins of all people throughout all time. It was God who fixed our sin problem. We're not refugees anymore. We're not exiles anymore through Jesus. God came to us. There's no barrier anymore between us and the divine. Jesus is the great high priest. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, the perfect holy priest, the ultimate royal priest. He is God the Son who created all things good and who made a way for all pain and sorrow to be undone. And we, 
you and I, if we trust in Jesus, are his priests to a world desperately in need of a Savior. The five, those five things that I mentioned that made the priests special, every single one of those apply to us, followers of Jesus. We do not deserve the kindness God shows us. There's nothing inherently good about us. Despite this, God chooses us. He acts on our behalf and makes what was dead alive again. He sets us apart, makes us new. He calls us to be different. He calls us to be light in this dark world. We can't do this on our own, but he does it through us. He lives in us. How crazy is that? And because of that, he gives us a mission more wonderful, scary, yes, but beautiful than we could ever possibly imagine. He tells us to go and tell others of what he has done for us. In Romans chapter 18, no, chapter 8, verse 17, we're called co-heirs with Christ. That means that his redemptive mission, his, his mediating work on our behalf, his ministering to others and others' needs, those are things that a priest does. We are now called to do the same thing. A Christian has this amazing privilege to represent Jesus to the world just as a priest would do. And thank goodness, because of what Jesus did for us, when God sees us, he sees his son, blameless and holy. Friends, we have a great responsibility as priests, as representatives, as representatives of our Savior. We, we get to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have no business doing that. And what is that? Verse 9 in 1 Peter 2. I think it says it all. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I told you earlier that, that this church has been that to me. I can't tell you how many times where I've been down, I've been in a bad place. It's because some of you didn't mind your own business. And you asked me what was wrong. I know the same is true for my wife, and I trust that the same will be true for my kids one day. You minister to us. You're priests to us. You're mediating on our behalf with your care and your comfort and your friendship. The kindness you've showed us as, we are, as we're getting ready for baby number two, it's... You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you and your love and your care. Everyone needs that. Everyone needs a mediator between them and a holy God, whether, whether they know it or not. They need someone to stand in the gap for them, to minister to them, to, to help do the necessary things, to close that gap between, between us and God that sin creates. We know we have a great 
a great mediator, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. But what we call the priesthood of believers does not give us the right to live these independent, individualistic lives on an island. We need each other. The opposite. The opposite is necessary. We have been shown a great, great mercy. And we have a privileged position to show great mercy. We need priests. We need bringers of good news, keeper of the keys to the good news that God so loved the world he gave his own son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We need priests to care for the widows and orphans and the least of these like Jesus commanded us to do. God is still ferociously holy. We depend on and exist based on the merits of our perfect priest. I want to end this morning by asking you and me, who will we tell? Who will we tell?